Hi, welcome to the first event this year of our Middle East History Lecture Series. Uh, <laughs> I'm very excited to introduce today Nagmeh Zorabi, uh, and she's going to talk about uh, the King's, uh, Shara or the King's Road, reinterpreting the European travel writing of Nasser Adin Shah Qajar. Uh, Nagmeh has graduated from Harvard University in 2005, and she's been uh, teaching at uh, Brandeis University in the Middle Eastern uh, Studies uh, history. history Department. And she recently had her book, Taken for Wonder, uh, coming out from uh, Oxford University Press. And I want to thank our co-sponsors for this event, uh, the Middle East uh, Center, the Middle East Study Center, the History Department, the Institute of Historical Studies, and that's it. <laughs> Nakman. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, and thank you for your computer. And Brianna for making all of this happen. And Lior, of course, for the invitation and, and the companionship. So I'm very excited to be here. So my talk today is based on one of the chapters of my book, um, and, and it's, as you can see, on the writings of Nasser Din Shah. Now, on a cold day in 1891, Eno Saltane, who was a court member and a meticulous diarist, settled down an hour and a half past sunset um, with his book. He starts reading a book. The book, he writes, was the king's latest account of his travels to Europe that had just been brought to Enos Altane. I'm quoting him here. I've been reading it for a few nights. He has done a good amount of sightseeing. I'm now reading the descriptions of the Paris Exposition and the Eiffel Tower. The countries of Europe are something else, and there's no comparisons with the East. End of quote. And you can almost hear Eno Saltana kind of sigh as he puts a book down and says, you know, I'm sure to himself, I wish I could go there. He always wanted to go to Europe and he never could. Now, more than 100 years after Eno Saltana recorded this in his diary, scholars almost unanimously would dismiss the king's multiple accounts of Europe for being trivial descriptions of parties, ballets, zoos, and they went, so scholars even went as far as saying that, you know, he paid no attention to the important details about negotiations and diplomatic issues. In other words, they did not, he did not pay attention to things that 20th century historians thought were important for a king's diary to reflect. Now, as you can guess, the king that I'm talking about is Nasser Din Shah, who ruled Iran from 1848 to 1896 when he was assassinated making him the longest ruling monarch in recent history of Iran. The length of his rule, which was roughly 50 years, the significance of his period at the tail end of the 19th century as a period of both successful reforms and failure um, to reform in other places, and his uniqueness, not only as a traveling monarch, but as a monarch who left behind numerous accounts of his travels, um, makes these diaries very, very important historical documents, obviously. But in the past hundred years, from the night that Eino Saltana sat down to read the diary until today, something has been lost in our understanding and our ability to understand the multi-layered meanings of these travel accounts, particularly for its own contemporary readership and the role that they played in their own time. 
Now, recovering this lost meaning was the project that I set out to do in my book, not just for Nasrettin Shah, but for a whole slew of other travel diaries that historians and scholars in the 20th century had said were not important or little, meaning, little attention should be paid to them. Now, how I went about solving this problem um, doesn't really require that much time, but it takes more time than I have right now. But to put the solution that I found very succinctly, the solution I thought to this problem of lost meaning was twofold. The first one required separating the act of traveling to Europe from the act of writing about Europe. To paraphrase um, Susan Nose, who's a scholar of literature, this kind of problem solving required an understanding that travel accounts were not objective reports of places and people, but rather works of rhetoric about places and people. And the second solution that I came up with was an understanding that the rhetorical works of these travel accounts as not being directed towards Europe per se, but being, but being directed towards Qajar Iran. In other words, let's try to read travel accounts not just for what they say about where the traveler went, but also for what they say about where the traveler came from. <clears throat> In the case of Nasreddin Shah, the main question is thus not why did Nasreddin Shah travel to Europe? You know, before him, the Ottoman Sultan, Sultan Abdul Aziz, had traveled already in 1867. Nasir Shah, for the first time, went in 1873. But why so meticulously write accounts of all three of his trips in 1873, 1878, and 1889, despite the fact that all three of these accounts had many repetitive overlaps and reiterations? The answer, I think, lies in the relationship of Nasir Shah's travel accounts both to his other numerous accounts that he wrote both about his travels inside of Iran, but also to the Ottoman Empire, particularly to Najaf and Karbala, and to the wide range of geographical works that had been commissioned by, by his court from Europe and translated from European languages into Persian. And I'm not going to get into that, and that, that's in the book, and it's a very interesting story what the Qajar, late Qajars knew about what Europeans were doing in terms of geographical discovery. Now, the depth and breadth of information on Europe already available to Nasreddin Shah before his travels, coupled with the contextualization of the European trips in the right, larger writing culture of his time, reveal the European travelogues to have meanings that go beyond a simple reflection of European progress as, have the, as they have been normally writ, um, read, and of course, arguments of self-othering. And I'm going to point to three of these meanings. First, similar to that of his domestic travelogues, the European travel accounts of Nasreddin Shah record geographical information of the places visited, particularly the lay of the land and geographical distances. Secondly, they are imperial self-narratives, both for an internal and external audience, and reveal the ways in which the Nasreddin court navigated Iran's position on the European and on the global stage. And lastly, in their reception and in their consumption, both abroad and domestically, the travelogues were tools of diplomacy and kingly rule. So in my talk today, it's going to have three parts. In the first one, I'm just going to discuss the notion of travelogues as imperial narratives of power within the specific geopolitical context of the Rajar state. Then I'm going to focus on two case studies in a way that will sort of further explain what I've said until now. One is I'm going to discuss Nasir Shah's writings on the world fairs 
in each of the five volumes that he has left behind of his European account. And then I'm going to look at how his writings were disseminated both for an internal and external audience. In other words, looking at them as imperial tools of governance in some ways. <clears throat> now, let's see. Yes, okay. Um, I'm just going to have the itinerary for his first trip up. His second trip in 1878 was much shorter, and it bypassed England. And in 1889, it kind of followed um, the itinerary of his first trip. Now, there was a multiplicity of factors that went into Nasir decision to travel for the first time in 1873. In his own travel accounts, so the first volume that deals with the 1873 trip, Nasser Din Shah is silent about those reasons, and he only starts his travel account by saying that it took them close to a year to prepare for this trip. But less than a month before his journey began, so on March 30th, 1873, Mirza Malkam Khan, some people call him Malkum Khan, I call him Malkam Khan because that's what my professor told me, um, visited William Tamor Thompson, the British minister to Iran, to explain, quote, the spirit in which the Shah's journey had been planned. This spirit, as explained to Thompson, was to correct a, quote, grave mistake that had been made in the conduct of Iran's external relations, namely treating all foreigners as one. And by foreigners here, they mean they treated the Iranians were apologizing for treating the Russians and the British as one, apologizing to the British. And a result not, quote, sufficiently cultivating the friendship of Great Britain. Now, on the one hand, it's very obvious that Malcolm Khan making an argument to Thompson, he is going to talk about the spirit of the visit being to glamorize um, the great British people and cultivating this friendship. And it's perhaps not the real reason behind Nasser Din Shah's first visit to England. But if we go a little bit back to the way in which Nasser Din Shah traveled in general, um, and the geopolitical significance in his choice of travel destinations, Malcolm Khan's reasoning becomes a bit clearer. By the time of his first European trip in 1873, 17 years had passed from the Anglo-Persian War of 1856-57. Nonetheless, even though 17 years had passed, relations with the British were anything but settled. And the memory of the 1856 defeat loomed quite large in both Persian and British minds. As such, Nasir Shah's 1873 travel, during which England was at the heart of this trip, and it occupied a central role, was meant to reveal the normalcy of the political situation and work as a gesture of peace. Something similar had happened three years earlier when Nasir Shah had traveled to the Atabat in the Ottoman Empire. And that trip had been celebrated by Iranian chroniclers, for example, for being the first instance of a Persian king traveling to Ottoman times in, in times of, Ottoman lands in times of peace. In that way, his European trip in 1873 could also be read as reflecting the stability of Iran and also its desire to extend peaceful intentions to what had in recent memory been a military enemy. And this was not lost on the European commentators also. So if you actually look at the documents around the same time, most descriptions of Nasir Din Shah's 1873 trip start by talking about the 1856 war with England. Now, Five years later, in 1878, when he's about, Nasir about to start his second trip to Europe, he actually writes in the introduction to his second volume, his 1878 volume, the two reasons that he believed he had for traveling in 1873. 
He doesn't write it in 1873, but writes it five years later. The first he gives was meeting various monarchs of Europe so that he could, quote, convey to them my good intentions and excellent relations so that their cooperation and friendship would lead to good results for my government and people. It's dolat and melat. And there's a lot of controversy over how to translate dolat and melat. I'm going to keep it at government and people. The second reason is, he says, to gain, quote, complete knowledge, etilat kamel, about the industries, customs, good traditions, laws, military methods, and so on, so that it benefits my milat vadolat, my people and government. The first goal, he says, he accomplished in 1873, but the second he believes he didn't because he was too busy being invited to all these diplomatic parties. And so he says, hey, now I have to go back to accomplish the second goal. Now, as is clear from this public explanation, Nasreddin Shah expressed the political aspects of his 1873 travel as both the primary reason for traveling and also one that he had successfully accomplished. Now, in the context of the framework of this talk, namely recovering the lost meanings of his European travelogues, the dual purpose of his travel, gathering knowledge and being presented to the kings of Europe, opens up the possibility of interpreting these texts as narratives of Qajar monarchical power and royal grandeur. In other words, these texts of Europe become attempts at recasting monarchical power through the medium of the written narrative. And they become part of a larger cultural phenomenon that other scholars have written about, particularly Afshin Ma'ashi, who noted um, that the Nasiri period was a period whereby, through the use of, quotes, use of public ceremonies, rituals, and festivals, Nasir Din Shah sought to project a new public image of monarchy. So it fits into that larger argument about the public image of monarchy in the Nasiri period in general. This notion of, if you want to call it the constant picturing, the constant narrating of the king as a way of exerting power, goes back to the second Qajar king, which is Fatali Shah Qajar, and his use of portraiture, rock reliefs, and odes to narrate his own royal um, power to the internal public. Nasir Din Shah's educational background, and Abbas Amanat has, has written quite extensively about it, made him quite familiar with the mechanics of his great-grandfather's imperial power. But by the time of Nasir Din Shah's rule, the disjointed iconographic representations of Fat Ali Shah, such as this rock relief, can you see it? These are humongous reliefs that had been carved into the rocks. But these are, as you can see, these are, this is one singular image of power that's projected. This gets replaced by the Nasiri period, or rather not replaced, but it gets complemented by the possibility of a sustained and more easily disseminated narration that writing and photography afforded him. And Nasruddin Shah, as some of you may know, was an extremely avid fan of photography, both having photographs taken, but also taking photographs himself. So while in the Nasiri period, the significance of monument building and large portraiture remained from the Fat Ali Shah period, the second half saw a more mobile and more easily disseminated expression of power in the form of imperial travelogues. In the first half of the 19th century, of course, representatives of the Qajar kings, the ambassadors who were sent to Europe or to the Ottoman Empire, Repeated, repeatedly narrated the presence and the importance of their monarchs' portraits in the European courts. They would carry the portraits of the Qajar king with them when they went to European courts, and then in their 
Sefarat Namez in their embassy reports, they would talk about how they presented these images to the various kings. But 50 years later, Nasreddin Shah could demonstrate the extent of his power to his own people and to Europe through actualizing. It's no longer his photograph that is traveling. He himself actualizes the potential for movement, travel, and geographical discovery. So by the 1870s, the pictorial representation of the Ghajar king in the European courts was added to it, was added not just the king himself, but also a narrative representation of him to audiences at home and abroad. Now this reading of travel logs as imperial narratives of stability and power does not necessarily exclude understanding them as texts of European customs. Since, as you know, and I already mentioned, observing Europe was indeed one of the stated reasons he had for traveling. Rather, that as narratives of the king himself, it filtered Europe through his eyes and words and gave the king's image of it a privileged place in the hierarchy of knowledge about Europe in the latter part of the 19th century. Now, in a letter to the king, the prime minister, Mushiro Dole, had written, quote, the value and meaning of this royal trip, meaning the 1873 trip, has not been sufficiently explained to the majority of our intelligentsia. This royal effort is not merely for tourism. It is a great main road, a shahra, right? Which literally means the road of the king that will lead to Iran's progress. But in the framework that I've laid out for you, the shahra to Iranian progress can also be read in the following way. It opened the door for the king's version of Europe to be integrated into the burgeoning discussions on progress, which as the king's road, as the shahra, was weighted more heavily than other versions. And this, in turn, allows us to shift our framework of understanding Iranian modernity and the centrality that Europe plays in, uh, has in it away from how Nasreddin Shah did not understand Europe and all it had to offer, which is what the majority of the secondary literature makes it out to be, and towards how his particular view of Europe crucially shaped the discourse around Europe after his travels. So what does this all mean? <clears throat> it's all nice and... Can I have some water, please? Thank you. Um, as I mentioned to you, I'm going to sort of expand on this by looking at two case studies, right? And the first one's going to be about the world fairs. Nasreddin Shah's awareness of the image of Iran and himself in the European scene, and I didn't take this picture um, randomly. I, I am using this picture because he is standing next to a bejeweled globe. Now, his awareness of the image of Iran in the European scene can clearly be seen in his descriptions of exposition or world fairs in his European travelogues. Created at the end of the 18th century, world fairs became a common fixture on the stage from the second half of the 19th century. By the 1867 Paris Expo and the creation of national pavilions, where the countries of the world were assigned um, a specific place in the fairs, the expositions became visual present represent presentations of the European and colonial ordering of the globe, a function that even to this day they carry. And, and, and if you read any description of world fairs, even like one that happened like in 2007 and 2008, it does carry a lot of the ordering of the world um, from, I'm talking about, for example, the Chicago one that happened recently in the United States. So that meaning has carried on from the middle of the 19th century to today. For Nasreddin Shah, though, these fairs also became yet another venue on which to situate and narrate imperial power in his travel accounts. 
the importance of being represented on the global stage at the World Fairs presented for the Egyptians, Ottomans, and the Qajars have noted, had been noted extensively elsewhere, and I'm not going to get into it, and I'm sure all of you have an inkling of what that argument is. But the juxtaposition of what we know about these World Fairs and Nasruddin Shah's descriptions of them in his books, descriptions that I want to point out were aimed at audiences at home, bring to the fore, I think, the cultural work that his narratives accomplished. Now, let's first note that each of Nasruddin Shah's European travels coincided with a World Fair. So Vienna in 1873, Paris in 1878, and again Paris in 1889. The descriptions of the World Fairs differ from one travel account to another, reflecting the extent of Iran's presence and the context in which Nasruddin Shah was traveling to Europe at the time. But what is constant, and what I think needs to be emphasized here, is the way in which the king's presence itself acted as an additional representation of Iran, like the carpets and the pottery that were on display in the pavilions, on this global stage that was the expos. So as such, the scenes of the World Fairs in each travel account operate on three representational levels. First, on the level of the Iran booth or pavilion, Second, on the level of the Iranian king himself, who embodies his dolat and melat, and who's walking through the Iran section. And third, on the level of the kingly narrative and his creation of a textual image for his audience's home, and as I will argue at the end, for his audience's abroad. So what does this all mean? Now, on August 1st, 1873, which was a cold day like it's been in Austin, um, in Vienna, <laughs> the king sets out towards the expo, the first of its kind that he's ever seen. So he first describes the emperor's pavilion, where he had lunch with the emperor, and proceeds from there to visit the exposition. Here, Nasruddin Shah describes the building of the fair in general, using almost exclusively and for understandable reasons, language, architectural language that would be familiar to his readers. So he says the exposition is like a charsu, or the crossroad Persian markets. It has a large gombat, he says, a dome, and it's full of bazaars, all moving out from the great gombat. Underneath the dome, he says, there's a hose, which is the typical Persian fountain um, that had been built by the French. So then he starts by explaining what was contained in the fair in general. He says, every dolat has a special place to display its wares. And in addition to some of the grand states, and the grand states were Russia, England, Germany, and not France, which is interesting. There were, he says, wares from, quote, the Ottoman state, Egypt, Greece, Japan, China, etc. When it comes to the pavilions, Nasruddin Shah mentions the Egyptian pavilion, the Ottoman, and the Persian ones, claiming that, quote, other than these, I didn't see pavilions from other states. Nasruddin Shah doesn't give much description to the physical structure of the Iran pavilion, and this is a reproduction of it, which was a two-story exhibition hall, as you can see, and was built on a residential scale. Instead, he explains to his readers that this, quote, building of mirror work was the product of only three months' work by an architect named Ustad Ismail and a carpenter um, who worked with Ustad Ismail. And then he goes on to say that Ustad Ismail managed to learn German during his three-month stay. I once gave this talk in Germany, and they loved it, especially because I had not learned German in three months while I was there. 
Um, and then uh, Sayyidina Shah, after saying this, again repeats how astonished he was at this job that was so well done in three months, and then says that, that a lot of money was spent on the pavilion. He then, interestingly, you have to admit, imagine the fair with Nasser Dinsha. He sits in the building with the director of the expo, has some ice cream, smokes some shisha, seriously, and then he leaves. <laughs> now, reading the descriptions of the Vienna Expo, and we have to read the descriptions in the context of, of the fact that Vienna at the time had been ravaged by cholera, raises the question of how much his impressions of the city fed into his and his readers' opinions of the expositions as sites of European progress. Neither science nor advances in technology were able to prevent Vienna from becoming a ghost city full of emaciated people and lepers, a scene the Nasser Din Shah prefaces his entire description of the Vienna Expo with. As such, it makes sense that his impressions of the Vienna Expo were both tempered and just focused on highlighting the Iranian achievement in the world. His second trip is a little different. His second trip seems to have been planned entirely around his visit to the Paris Expo, where Iran now had a pavilion also. So on June 9th, 1878, Nasser Din Shah and his retinue enter Paris in the early morning light, um, when Paris was, quote, dead, not a sound could be heard. That's what he says. He checks into the Grand Hotel, where he says all the monarchs had come to stay in Paris and tries to get some sleep, but he can't. He's super restless. So he orders the carriage to be brought to, quote, since we must go quickly to the exhibition. I don't know how early the exhibition opened, but he seemed to be very, very impatient. So eventually, after some delay, they set off from Trocadero to the exhibition gate, which it would be, um, this would be from the Trocadero looking at it. You're at Trocadero looking at the exhibition gate in this one. Um, <clears throat> and he notes that it's a long distance as if going from the Qajar Palace to the Tehran Gate. The exhibition building, he states, is made of steel and crystal, and from every people, nation, and every state, and every land, there are commodities and people. This time, the king seems much more excited about this expo, where he describes as being so vast and so full of wondrous and strange manufactured goods that if, quote, I wanted to describe describe it, I would have to take a book as big as the Shahnameh and for the duration of the expo, write about it every day and night. Until one sees it with one's own eyes, he continues, it would be impossible to imagine such a thing in one's own mind. Now, despite using these tropes, and I'm sure they're familiar to a lot of you, these tropes, he actually does describe the exposition, beginning with a detailed description of Iran's pavilion. And you can see how different it is from the 1873 one. I went to Iran's pavilion, he says, which had been built very well. The Egyptian, Tunisian, Chinese, and Japanese pavilions are near Iran's, but in truth, Iran's was better than the rest. The pavilion, he said, included a marble fountain and a room with mirror work, of course, with, quote, windows and doors that had all been made in Iran. Many people come to see it, end of quote. So after going through the pavilions, he goes then to the booths, which, as you know, are smaller than the pavilions. Quote, we went past the sections for England, France, China, Japan, Russia, Austria, Germany, the New World, Italy, the small states of the New World, etc., until we got to Iran's section. We sat there. It had good commodities. 
And then he gives some detailed descriptions of the wares that were on sale there, including cloth from Yazd and Kashan, high-quality carpets. And he ends it by saying, Iranian goods sell at a high price here with 10 times the profit. The pride of place that Nasreddin Shah gives to Iran's pavilion underscores the importance of narrating to his readers the place Iran occupies on the world stage as represented by its participation in the 1878 Expo. He conveys this not just in the terms of the details he provides, but also in the familiarity of his description for his readers. As such, his readers, his Iranian readers, see themselves represented on the global scene that is the world fairs and also made aware of the material value that he put upon this representation. But the flip side of that also happens in 1878. While the presence of the Persia pavilion is stressed, the absence of Iran's neighbor and rival, the Ottoman Empire, is also stressed. So he says, quote, the Ottoman state, due to war and troubles, has sent neither commodities nor representative. And that's the ending of his section on the expo. What he stresses in this one sentence is not just that the Ottomans are absent, but that they are absent due to war and troubles. Right? Iran's existence and representations in the expo becomes for the Iranian monarch a symbol of Iran's stability, one that he takes time to visualize for his readers back home. And this stability was only reinforced by the fact that Iran could not only represent itself on the global stage, but could also send its greatest representative, the pivot of the universe, Nasreddin Shah, onto the stage. The dual presence of Iran and the absence of its regional rival, the Ottoman Empire, was actually picked up by other commentator, one of commentators, one of whom said, quote, the absence of Turkey and Egypt has already been noted. The burden of the Orients remaining, lying literally upon Persia, which showed itself quite capable of bearing it in shawls, rugs, carpets, and other fabrics of silk, wool, and cotton, showing the warmth of her sun and colors and the corresponding warmth of her taste of her people. It need not be said that these were only part of a collection really very complete, though in a small space, and that the Persian decorations having the Shah in view were very rich and elaborate. It's like built for Iranian nationalists. <laughs> By 1889, Nasir Shah's wariness in life in general shines through in his travel account. There is none of the curiosity of the 1873 description or the enthusiasm of the 1878 description. And note also, and we're going to talk about it in a second, that it's no longer this grand two-floor house or this pavilion. And it's called the Persian house, not the Persian pavilion. Um, <clears throat> in addition to him just being weary in general, in 1889, the Iranian presence in the exposition was orchestrated, Nasrin Shah talks about this, by a, quote, Farangi a European who had asked permission to display Persian wares, and a Monsieur Richard, who had come to Iran 40 years ago, converted to Islam, married, and had a son in Tehran. Now, while Nasrin Shah approves of the wares that were displayed in the Persian house, like the good carpets, he also notes that, quote, old China, ancient tiles from the shrines, broken tiles from the city of Ray, old coins, old paintings, collected by Richard over the past 40 years, for which he had, quote, not even paid 1,000 tomans, had been bought by the London Museum for 8,000 liras, which is 30,000 tomans. 
So he, he gave permission to Mr. Richard, and then Richard and then felt that he had been taken for. Despite the difference in Iran's participation in each fair, what mattered, given that Nasreddin Shah's first visit out of multiple visits each time, concentrated on the Persia pavilions and booths, was that Iran was present. While there's undoubtedly much truth to the interpretation of world fairs as colonial orderings of the world and everything that that entails, and questions of power and representation and all of that, Nasreddin Shah's retelling of the expositions reveals that this is not the whole story to the world fairs. Etemadu Saltane, who had accompanied the king to Europe in 1889, attests to the meaning this carried for the Iranian delegation when he writes, quote, the government of the Republic of the New World, which is the United States, the Republic of the New World, which doesn't even have much of a population, has spent 40 to 50,000 tomans, has sent wares and constructed an excellent building in order to preserve their honor, namus. Our dolat has been humiliated in front of everyone because of the 10 to 15,000 toman cost and lack of manpower. So to not appear said something about the relative strength and stability of a nation, as the king takes great pains to point out in regards to the Ottomans and the Egyptians, and to be present on the world fairs as a sovereign state was to have the means financially and politically to participate on this costly global stage. Okay, so the last point, the last thing that I'm going to talk about, we talked about the world fairs, but we're going to now talk about how these travel logs were used as objects for governance and diplomacy after I've had some water. Okay. So how can we read, use this framework to read travel logs as objects, right, as tools? In a letter sent from Tehran dated April 22nd, 1873, William Taylor Thompson that we talked about earlier informed the second Earl of Granville, not to be mistaken for Downton Abbey, um, then foreign secretary. Um, he says that according to his mission agent, so his spy in Shiraz, quote, fears are entertained in Shiraz of additional disturbances occurring in farce when the Shah proceeds to Europe, end of quote. As a result of this, a farman, a decree from Nasreddin Shah, written to his son, who was then the governor of Fars, one of his sons, um, was, quote, publicly read in that city, also having references to his majesty's journey. According to the translation that Thompson provides of the mission agent's letter, whose name was J. Ibrahim, in his letter, Nasreddin Shah informed his son and the restless population of Fars that while he is traveling in Europe in the company of the prime minister, the affairs of the country were fully in the hands of another prince, Motamedo Dole, to whom all the governors of provinces are to give their obedience as if his orders were that of the kings. Then J. Ibrahim continues that, quote, the inhabitants of Persia are not to imagine that the Shah's absence will cause any disturbance in the state affairs. For should anything go wrong, his majesty can return from any spot in Europe to Persia in 15 days. Another letter from this um, spy, Mr. J. Ibrahim, leads us to the ways in which Nasreddin Shah was able to fill the void and allay the anxieties that had been felt by his absence. Writing this time, so before he was writing from Shiraz in the south, now he's writing up north from Asarabad. He says, 
On the 5th of July, a telegram was received from Tehran announcing the gracious reception of the Shah in England, the reviews which have taken place both by sea and by land. He goes on to say that this telegram that had been sent was written out and then read out loud to the summoned military and civil authorities. So what does this mean? Well, the use of the telegram as the means by which to announce the movements of his king, his receptions in Europe, all of this through Nasreddin Shah's own words were employed to maintain stability and peace during his long absence abroad and undoubtedly to justify his travels to the population. Nasreddin Shah clearly articulated his intentions in the decree he issued at the beginning of his second trip in 1878 when he said, quote, Using the telegraph, which is spread to all of the land of Iran, everyday events in every country of Europe, etc., can be conveyed at any moment and a response received. Also, if there are any orders, it will be sent by the telegraph every day from the king to the great ministers and princes. Then he continues that there will be large encampments in various provinces that will receive orders from Europe, assuring people that those in charge in his absence will not rest from their duties even for a minute. Telegrams were also fed into the official gazette, which was called Iran, and this is just one page of it, to provide information that was not necessarily up to date. I've tracked the information, it's like 11 days off. Um, but regular, but the, even though it was off, it was regular, these announcements of Nasreddin Shah's whereabouts during his travels, both when he traveled internally, but more importantly, when he traveled to Europe. So Iran, for example, is full of reports from April to August of 1878, following the trail of the traveling king from his entry into Azerbaijan to Vienna and then heading back home from Paris. During his third visit in 1888-1889, similarly, the public could keep track of the king through regular reports from the Telegraph, such as that uh, that was published in Iran on the 27th of August, 1889, which said, quote, According to the Telegraph News, the king's retinue entered the seat of rule of Vienna, the glorious capital of the state of Austria, where the utmost reception and honors deserving of his majesty were bestowed. This was recognized, this notion of, of um, the telegraph and then being fed into the Gazette was recognized in Nasir Shah's own time when Red House, who translated Nasir Shah's uh, travelogue only a year after he had written them, noted in the introduction that the contents, quote, of the present diary were communicated to the Persian public in the official part of the Tehran Gazette and are therefore more or less of the nature of what we daily read at home in the court circular. Now, once the king returned home, his travelogues were then made public. For example, on April 13th of 1874, which was less than a year after he returned from his first trip, an announcement appeared on the pages of the official gazette. It said, the book of travels of His Highness, which have been printed on the newly bought machine from Europe, and which contains daily events of his trip from the day of the royal departure from the seat of rule to entry into the port of Anzali and the geography of the lands of Farang have been bound in the royal printing house and is on sale for 12 Qadans. Now, we don't have any information as to who actually bought the travelogues, for example, how um, well received that advertisement was, but we know based on the repetition in court chronicles and entries such as that of Eno Saltanes, with which I started this talk, 
It's clear that at least members of the court, if not beyond, was, were reading this final product. Print also gave Nasreddin Shah a way to use his travelogues as an object in the service of imperial power and its related protocols abroad. While earlier ambassadors, as I mentioned to you, carried with them portraits of the Ghajar king, Nasreddin Shah, through the distribution of his travelogue to foreign sovereigns and dignitaries, in one stroke presented a portrait of himself and also that of Europe as narrated by him. So we see on the first page of November 16, 1874 issue of Iran, under the heading Internal News, we see that it says, quote, the court received a letter from the Crown Prince of England thanking Nasir Din Shah for the travelogue which he had written while in Farangistan and had sent as a souvenir to the Crown Prince. The news then also states that England's translators had translated it to English. And then in the same issue, he also talks about how they had given a copy of it to the French minister and how the French minister had thanked um, Nasreddin Shah on behalf of Marshal McMahon, who was the president of the republic. The French, I don't think, liked it as much because they didn't immediately translate it um, into French. Nonetheless, the gifting of his travel accounts to European ambassadors and the subsequent appearance of the English translation demonstrates the ways in which Nasreddin Shah conducted a proto type of image control, for lack of a better word. He interjected his own narrative of himself and his journey into the British Reading Republic while at the same time exercising his royal prerogative and power by presenting an ever-powerful Europe, a Persian mirror of itself. The ways in which the Nasiri court used new technologies such as telegraphs, print, and photography to change the nature of its rule is a crucial topic that unfortunately has not been fully examined. Slowly, we're getting studies out like David Motadeh's article in Past and Present. Too often, though, discussions of reform in the Nasiri period have focused on its successes or its failures based on a particular notion of change that was advocated later on by the constitutionalists. But it's very clear that through the use of technology, Nasreddin Shah was able to significantly change, change and shape the ways in which kingly sovereignty was exercised in Iran. Whether in the form of a telegraph or a book, Nasreddin Shah's constant narration of his travels filled the gap created by his physical absence and was astutely used as a tool for governance. One can only speculate that the king's textual presence was one of the reasons why there was no destabilizing uprising during Nasreddin Shah's long and far absence. And it is a testament to the effectiveness of his use of writing as a way of placing himself, Iran, during those absences. I'm going to end on that. Thank you.